Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. One of the classic hymns of the early, of the English language is the song At Calvary. It was written and published in the 1890s by William Newell. Now, you know the words. I'd sing them to you if, uh, if, if, I wanted, um, if I wanted you all to leave early. But I can read them dramatically, right? So, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Then you get the chorus, mercy there was uh, great and grace was free, pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. By God's word, at last my sin I'd learned. Then I trembled, trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. That's really one of the great hymns. It's one that I love to sing. And not everybody thinks it's a great hymn, though. It's not always been as popular as it is. One of the famous preachers of the last generation was Donald Barnhouse. He was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Some of you uh, maybe recall listening to his radio program, The Bible Study Hour, uh, with Dr. or it's also known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. Dr. Barnhouse wasn't opposed to the song, but he would not allow his congregation to sing the third verse. What did Dr. Barnhouse find so questionable about verse 3? Well, everything. Based on what happens in our text today from Acts chapter 5. Again, verse 3, now I've given to Jesus everything. Barnhouse said, now I've given to Jesus everything, now I gladly own him as my king. You see, if God acted in the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. Consider where things are in this early church. Everything's going great. Needs were being met. There was plenty. The budget was covered. But we need to remember that the devil's most effective attack doesn't typically come from some outside authority. It's not some outside secular agency or some pagan institution. It's not some government government enemy that is frequently the church's greatest threat. The church's biggest enemy, it's probably not hyperbole to say this, comes from within. I dare say that the church has probably damaged herself far more than she's been damaged by someone else. That's exactly what happens here in Acts chapter 5. I would invite you to turn there and stand as we look at Acts chapter 5 when we read these words. Acts chapter 5, a familiar story, one that ought to strike some, a little bit of fear into our hearts today in Acts chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, How is it you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Father, I thank you for your word, even when it approaches us with a scary topic. We pray, God, that we would understand and apply these words well today and that you would guard our hearts against deception. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, we see this early church is characterized by what we would consider radical generosity. We saw this in chapter 4. People were taking radical steps to provide for one another's needs. There's, there's sacrificial giving. That's, giving. that's doing without something so you can give more. And then there's giving that requires a sacrifice. And that's what's happening here. we got people selling property and, and donating money from the sale of the property to the church. The first church I pastored while I was in seminary, little town that wasn't much more than a post office and a wide spot in the road. The church wasn't more than a handful either. I've mentioned before, but we were really close to where they built the Mercedes factory, and a large portion of the land where they built that factory was owned by a couple of the families who went to church there. And so they got a premium for the property when they sold it to the auto manufacturer, and as a result, they made very large contributions to the church right before they moved away. And so what happened is you can imagine that in a small little church with more than, no more than just a handful of people, you lose a couple of key families because they've moved and the church suffered an attendance dip. However, at the same time the attendance dropped, the offering went through the roof. It looked so strange on paper to see the year that the attendance dropped and the money went up. And I remember getting a call one day from the Alabama Baptist leaders and they were doing some study on church growth and, and things like that. And they were doing some research on smaller churches. And they wanted to understand how attendance went so poorly and the budget went so, experienced such an increase. They were curious how that could be so different. And, and it was clearly explained because of a generous land sale. We understand, of course, healthy churches are generous churches, and we see this happening in this infant church. It goes without saying, though, that our generosity extends beyond our dollars. Again, we see this early church not just investing financially. They're doing life together. They're spending time together. And those who didn't have land to give, they weren't excluded. They weren't treated any differently. However, this, this chapter begins with a very important contrast. We look back in chapter 4, and we've just been introduced by Barnabas. Uh, we're told he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold the field that belonged to him and did the same thing. Barnabas is a good guy. We read about Barnabas in the Bible, and the Bible says, be like Barnabas. Be a son of encouragement. Be a daughter of encouragement. Barnabas is an example. He's a role model. Every time you encounter Barnabas in the New Testament, he's doing something that's praiseworthy. He's doing something that's good. He's doing something that is worthy of our emulation. 
He's a good guy. Chapter 5 begins with a very important three-letter word in the Bible, but. Right? So here's Barnabas, but. Let me introduce you to Ananias. Be like Barnabas. Don't be like Ananias. Don't be like Ananias, who did similar to Barnabas, but with a very sinister twist. We recognize here as well that there's no place for favoritism in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that in this whole process that there are only three people who are actually named for this significant act of generosity. And again, the implication is that there's more, right? That there's more people who are participating in this. But the only three people who are named are, of course, Barnabas. And he's remembered for his gift of encouragement. That's what we see him for going forward. You have Ananias and Sapphira. They're remembered not for their sale of the property, but for the lie that they told in the process. This tells me that in this early church, there probably weren't any brass plaques. There probably weren't any preferred membership status. I remember going down to Gulfport, Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina and helping a church that had been taken out in the flood there. And we were going through a closet of, of this church that had been so severely damaged. And there was one of those old... Uh, you guys have seen them if you've been around church any length of time. It was one of those old plaques that hung on the wall, and it had the hymnal dedication on it. And how'd you get your name on that plaque? Well, you, made, you, you, you wrote a check to the hymnal collection process. And, and it had all these names of all these people who had given money to the hymnal collection. And I asked the pastor, I pulled this out, it had been, uh, you know, been in the closet, it had been underwater, and so it had seen better days. And I asked the pastor, I said, what do you do with this? See, I've been in a Baptist church long enough, and some things you don't throw away, and if it's got a brass plaque on it, you're not allowed to throw it away. Because somebody's grandma gave some money that got that brass plaque installed. And the pastor looked at me and he said, well, that doesn't count for much anymore, does it? And he said, throw it in the dumpster with everything else. You see, it's amazing that when everything's taken away, what really matters, and the donation to the hymnal fund for the hymnals, the hymnals that were destroyed in the hurricane, didn't count for much anymore. It didn't matter much anymore. You see, if you were one of the landowners there in the early church, there was no desire to give you the best seat. You know, they didn't let them sit in the balcony because that's where the best seat is, right? There was no desire to, to name something after them because of their generosity. But you look at how we function today in today's Christendom, and, and I've been in churches where everything's got somebody's name on it. You know, don't sit in my pew. Well, it's not my pew. Well, it's got my name on it right? Everything's got a brass plaque. Everything has been named. Everything has somebody's name on it. And generally, it's because of some sort of financial contribution. If you go to one of our Baptist colleges, they will put somebody's name on anything. This is so-and-so hall. This is so-and-so memorial library. This is the John Smith memorial bathroom. I mean, you write a check, and you can get a brass plaque. The problem is, is this sort of pattern doesn't really square with New Testament teaching. James chapter 2, verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In other words, if you want to name something after somebody, we probably just need to name it after Jesus. Now, this is the Jesus Christ library. This is the Jesus Christ hall. This is who all of our honor and praise and direction should go to is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if your generosity is conditioned on being recognized for it, then you've really stepped outside the appropriate expression of the spiritual gift of giving. Not only is this a problem for the giver, it, it's also a problem for the church. Ever heard this before? Don't make so-and-so mad. They're pretty generous givers. 
Don't irritate so-and-so because they're big-time givers. Well, if that's what we're thinking, we've got a big-time problem. The fact of the matter is this. In general, we ought to avoid making people mad. And it really doesn't matter if they're generous givers or, or misers. We ought to really avoid making people mad. The Bible actually tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. For, and for the holiness without, without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with the generous, for those who aren't so generous. Strive for peace with those who make you mad. Strive for peace with those who don't make you mad. Strive for peace with everyone. That's, the, that's how the church ought to function, is that we ought to be striving for peace with one another. And so believe it or not, it should not be RMO to show up at church ready to tick people off. And it shouldn't be RMO to show up at church ready to be leaved, leave ticked off either. Strive for peace with everyone. You see, we look at Ananias and Sapphira's story, and we can't help but see that the sin that's here is the sin of feigned devotion. They saw what was happening. They want to be part of it. Want to be part of this, of this process. I mean, what, a, what an inspiring thing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that happening in the church where people just start selling their property? People start selling their fields? People start selling their, their estate and just laying the money down? I mean, what a sight that must have been. To see that happen, of course, it'd be hard to do it today because you got to wait 30 days for closing. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's not just quite as easy as, as, you know, here's a check for the land, you know, and whatever they did in the Middle East, swap shoes or whatever it is that they did to confirm the land sale. Just imagine what that must have been like. And for Ananias and Sapphira, probably, not probably, they were new believers. They saw all that happen, but when they had the money in hand, those intentions went to the wayside. And instead of agreeing to give some and keep some, they agreed to keep some and then lie about how much that they were giving. So they got the best of both worlds, right? They got recognition because everybody got to see them come forward and lay their gift down. But they also got a nice boost to their retirement fund. They got brass plaques and a Caribbean vacation, right? Everything worked in their favor. Peter makes the point to Ananias, though. Look at verse 4. You don't have to do this. Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. He didn't have to do it. Nobody was forcing this. This wasn't something where, where you know, the church was forcing landowners to do this. Again, we talked about that. That's communism when someone forces you to give your property up for the sake of someone else. That's communism. This is love and care when people voluntarily do it. This is the church caring for one another, but it wasn't a condition of church membership. They weren't doing a membership drive targeting wealthy landowners. They didn't get together and have an evangelism committee meeting and say, we're only going to go after the wealthy folks so that we can boost our offerings. It's not what they did. Uh, there was nobody checking credit scores or W-2 forms at the door. That wasn't taking place in this time. And so we know what happens with Ananias and Sapphira was a premeditated, planned decision. They didn't have to do it. They were new believers. Everybody essentially was new believers. And we see here we're reminded how important it is for us to not stay new believers. How important it is for us to move beyond that stage of being a new believer. Because if we're new believers, the world we left behind is very close and it eagerly calls out to us. We need to make sure that we're getting into the Word, that we're in a group of like-minded Christians where we can dig in the Word together. Because the Holy Spirit is eager to help us to grow. 
But the means the Spirit uses are going to require something from us. We're not going to grow by staring at the Bible or by claiming an affiliation with the church. We grow by getting into the Word. We grow by digging into it deeply with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. If you are not involved in some sort of group where you are being edified and encouraged and challenged, then you are not growing as you should. It's okay for new believers to still be drinking milk. But we got to make sure that we're growing away from the milk so that we can take solid food. And we know Ananias and Sapphira, they were very guilty of a very public, very premeditated, very sad example of feigned devotion. We need to ask ourselves, are we ever guilty of such a sin? I think we all know how to answer that question. How about this? This ever happened in your life? Man, I really need your prayers for this situation that's going on. I'll be praying for you. And then we never actually pray for him. We, you know, we hear this story, we hear this thing going on. I'll pray for you, and it never happens. It never happens. Again, we don't necessarily want to admit to that, but how many of us have had that in our lives? Or, or maybe it's as simple as this. Did you do your Sunday school lesson this week? Absolutely, I did. I studied my Sunday school lesson. I was prepared for my Sunday school lesson. Just don't call on me to answer a question this week. Or how about, how about this? How's that quiet time going? Oh, me and the Lord, we had a great time this morning. We spent all kinds of time together. We prayed, did, well, I prayed for 30 minutes, and I read my Bible for 30 minutes. And, and you know, I, I just spent hours with the Lord this morning. Did you really? Did you really? You see, we hear those things, and we know the answer that we're supposed to share, but the answer that is truth is not one that we want to share. It's just like if you read some of these surveys, like from Gallup and Pew and these other survey organizations, man, they think that there are more Christians in the United States than anything else. Because when somebody calls you on the phone and says, are you a born-again believer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, I'm a born-again believer. Absolutely, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Well, and they write that down. Well, I just talked to a Christian. But when we start to look at that person who said, yeah, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and we look at their life, and they don't belong to a church, they don't go to a church, they haven't done anything with a church in 30 years, well, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, why are you so opposed to his people? Because the fact of the matter is the two don't go hand in hand. You don't get Jesus as Lord and then get to back out on the church because when you accept Jesus as Lord, the church becomes your people. You don't get to choose otherwise. All Ananias had to do, all that he had to do when this happened, Peter, friends, Sapphira and I, we, we were going to give everything. We had made our mind up. We were going to give everything. But we started looking at our finances we started looking at our situation and we decided that we needed to keep some of this for our needs we decided that we needed to maybe we had debts that we had to pay we had some situations that we needed attended to and so we wanted to give everything but we started looking and we realized that we couldn't give everything but we want to give what we can we want to give what we can we want to do what Barnabas did but at this time we just couldn't do it you know what Peter would have said no problem. Why? Because they didn't have to do it. 
No one was making them. No one was compelling them. There was no, it wasn't a condition of church membership. If they had just been honest, that's not a problem. Then God would have used what they had given and multiplied, multiplied what they did. So now we know what happens. Ananias shows up with the money. You can imagine him walking down the, I don't know, we imagine the church had an aisle. I don't suspect it had an aisle back then. It's probably just a loose gathering of people, but Peter's at the front. You imagine Ananias walking to the front, making eye contact with Peter. He's made up his mind what he's going to do. Here's my, here's my check for how much I sold the land for. Peter, here it is. Recognition, praise, honor. Everybody look at me. Let's name the building after Ananias. Let's get the brass plaques printed. Here it is. And Peter's not smiling. Peter's not receiving this gift as he had imagined because the Spirit gave Peter some insight. And he confronts Ananias about this, and Ananias drops dead. And the church organizes its first committee. You didn't know this was a Baptist church. The first committee is formed here. It's called the Young Men Committee. Because the young men in the church arise and they've got a new task. Their job is to remove bodies and dig graves. So the young men committee, they rise up, they come down, they remove Ananias' body, they cover him up, and they take him out to the very first church cemetery and they bury him. Think about this. The first recognized funeral of the church is a funeral of the hypocrite. Three hours pass. Sapphira... She'd been trying to call her husband all day. Wasn't answering his texts. Couldn't, couldn't track him down for some reason. So where's she at? Well, the last place he was was at church, so I'm going to go down to church and see if he's there. And she comes down, and Peter sees her coming, and Peter confronts her. And she had an opportunity to say, what did he do? Ladies, you ever done that with your husband? You find out something, what has he done? Got a new truck in the driveway? What did you do? Right? She had an opportunity. I don't know what happened. What has he done? Instead, Peter looks at her and says, do you know about this? And she said, yeah, absolutely. We've already talked about it. We agreed. Young men committee rises up. They've got another job to do. They come down, take her out in the same way meets the same fate as her husband. People always look at this story. This is one of these, this is one of these stories where people are like, well, were these people Christians? Right? Well, Judas. Was Judas a believer? Right? I mean, it's one of these people. It's one of these bad people, one of the bad guys in the story. We look at this and say, are there any way that Ananias and Sapphira were actually Christians? And I tend to think they were. I tend to think they were. They were disobedient. They were defiant. We don't know about their, their motives, per se, but we understand that they were looking for influence in this new community, and they went about it in the wrong way, and they were punished for it severely. The 17th century Anglican clergyman Jeremy Taylor called this punishment a sanctifying discipline for the church. It had an effect showed that this church was not some social club. There was work to be done. There was no kind of time for this level of deception. We're told in verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You think? Man, what a story that was. You imagine how quick the news trucks would be here? 
If a husband and wife drop dead at the end of the service, right here at the front, husband and wife, Channel 3 would be out here with a satellite truck. Husband and wife drop dead at local Baptist church service. Pastor under investigation for poisoning. (laughs) These verses are tough. And the application of these verses really seeks to root around really, really deep in our hearts. You see, this is not a, a story or a question about money or generosity. We see this first church, and we see that financially their needs, their needs are being taken care of in abundance. The generosity experienced by this church is, is astonishing. However, at no point, as we've said, did Ananias and Sapphira have to do what they did. They could have kept their property. No one made them liquidate. Nobody was forcing that upon them. So this is not a question about money or generosity. Instead, it's a question about deception, authenticity, and hypocrisy. This husband and wife team wanted to be the center of attention. They wanted people to see their generosity and say, wow, those people must really, really love the Lord. They wanted the brass plaque. They wanted the recognition. They wanted their name on the building. They wanted people to remember them. And you know what? I guess they got that part right because they certainly have been remembered. There is a danger that lurks within the body of Christ that warrants our attention. And it's what lurks behind our masks, not our COVID masks. You see, our masks aren't part of a visible masquerade where we parade around and try to conceal our identity, but we do wear masks nonetheless. Ananiah and Sapphira wore masks of generosity, but they were actually concealing behaviors that were seeking popularity, influence, respect. But all of this, they were feigning their piety to achieve their objectives. Maybe they saw the positive attention of Barnabas and longed for that kind of affirmation. Regardless of what was hiding behind their masks, in a word, they were hypocrites. There's an older Casting Crown song called Stained Glass Masquerade. And the chorus says this, says, Are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness and smiles that hide our pain? Therein lies the problem of Ananias and Sapphira. Plastic people without any shred of authenticity. This passage challenges us to look behind our masks to see what's actually there. You see, in spite of the clear command of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We have been conditioned today for deception. We are like the prophet Isaiah. Remember when Isaiah was confronted with the glory of God? He says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. We're like that. Except, Woe unto me, for I am a man of deception, and I come from a people of deception. We are conditioned for deception. And we learn to deceive from an unimaginably young age. If you've ever had children, think of the first time your children learned to deceive you. It wasn't when they were 16 or 17. As a matter of fact, I believe that when children learn their first words, those words are attached to the ability to use those words for deception. You see, Peter's confrontation here in this text is a call for us to confront our own hearts as well. Is there deception in our hearts when it comes to our devotion? 
are we saying one thing, doing another? Do our pretty plastic faces cover up everything nicely for the rest of us here in the room? What about when we take our plastic faces off? You know, we've learned some things over the last year. One of the things we've learned is that um, we don't like to wear masks 24 hours a day, seven days a week, do we? Um, I, how many times have you been in the store and, and it's been hot outside and you've had the mask on because the store has asked you to put the mask on and the second you get outside, whew, you can't wait to take it off because it's hot, the, the, the air's not moving well. You can't wait to take it off. We don't like to wear masks all the time, but we'll gladly put them on when our options are very limited. You may not believe it, but your plastic face your spiritual deception. It's a matter of life and death. You're probably not going to drop dead at the altar. For whatever reason, it seems that this was a punishment that God has reserved for this particular season in the church's development. And you might be able to pull off the deception among those of us who only see you in the mask. Undoubtedly, you can put that mask on week in and week out, and everybody will swoon about how faithful you are, and one day we will gather at the cemetery and we will bury you in your mask. But the people who saw you without the mask, they don't want anything to do with the faith. It's practiced in such a hypocritical way. Let us never forget that there are people who are watching us when we put our masks on, and they are watching us when we take our masks off. And they can see through the mask like it is a clear glass window to our hearts. Our proficiency at, hypo- at hypocrisy we understand, is leading to an entire generation turning its back on the church. The church looks around today and says, where are the 20-year-olds? Well, the 20-year-olds aren't here because they saw 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds saying one thing and acting another, believing one thing and acting another. Because we've got very proficient with that plastic face. So what do we do? First, Check out your mask. See what's behind it. Ask the hard question about your honesty and your patterns of deception. Do we exaggerate our stories? Do we color reality with our own shades? I always laugh at guys who've been fishing. You know, they, they, you look at a guy who's going fishing, and everybody who's ever been fishing that want, that's caught a fish they're proud of, they know that there's a particular way you're supposed to take a picture with that fish. You don't hold the fish here. The camera's right there. You hold the fish here. Because that three-pound bass looks like a five-pound bass when you hold it closer to the camera. Everybody who's fishing will tell you that. You don't take it back here. You know, you hold that fish out in front of the camera. Do we exaggerate our stories? Are we doing a great job at playing church with no real devotion to the Lord? Are we trying to be on the outside what we are nowhere close to being on the inside? So we need to look at our masks. But secondly, we have to... Take our masks and lay them aside. We call that repentance. We have to lay our deception and sin before the Lord. And we might find that we need to shine light on our own deception for those who are watching. Parents, if we have come up short in our children's lives, if we have said one thing and done another, we need to look at our children and say, that's the sin of deception. And this is the expectation of walking with the Lord in our life. Some of the most powerful things you can do as a mom and dad 
is look at your kids when you've messed up and say, I'm sorry. I messed up. I'm sorry my sin got a hold of me. I'm sorry that I said one thing and acted in another way. And that goes a whole lot further to helping that child grow in the fear and knowledge of the Lord than to see us not willing to own our mistakes. Finally, we have to guard our hearts against those masks in the future. Because the thing is, is, is that taking the mask off is vulnerability. It's true for COVID, right? You know, they say you wear a mask and it helps stop the spread. I mean, you can do what you want to with that. Uh, that's fine. But if we believe that, I mean, we, we believe that that mask provides some protection between us. You take it off and you're now what? You're vulnerable, right? I mean, that's, that's, that works. You're vulnerable. You, you, you have an opportunity to be exposed. That mask, that, that spiritual mask helps to protect me from vulnerability. Nobody knows my weakness. Nobody knows my shame. Nobody knows what's going on inside. And so I wear this mask so that nobody can see the real me. And people look at me on Sunday morning and they say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. And deep down inside, you're not fine. Deep down inside, there's a wrestling match going on between you and the Lord. Deep down inside, it's not okay. But through that mask and through that smile, everything's fine. I'm fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about me. I'm not vulnerable. I'm strong. And the mask says, Behind it, you're really not. What if the church decided we're going to look at each other and we're going to admit something radical? We don't have it all together. We don't have it all together. We're trying. My marriage is tough. My finances are a wreck. I'm failing at my job. I'm struggling parenting my kids. My adult children don't want to come see me. Things are tough. That level of vulnerability is where God can say, that's, that's where I can move. That's where I can work. That's where I can help you grow. But if all we ever do is through the mask, I'm fine, it's fine, everything's fine. And we try to function in our own strength. And we know what happens then. We fall flat on our face every single time. And so we need to take our masks off. We need to look deeply at what they conceal. And then we need to lay them aside and guard our hearts against those failings in the future. Find those people who will help you grow. You, you got those people in your life where, where they ask how you're doing, you say everything's fine, and they look at you and they know it's not. They know it's not. They know there's something going on. They know there's a need to pray for. They know, they know there's something they know you're in your sin and, and you need a kick in the pants to get out of it. We need those people in our lives. Those people who can help us overcome that deception when we lie to ourselves and we lie to everybody else and to avoid that failure in the future.
So may God help us today to take our masks off and let the Lord see us for who we are and let us be willing to let each other see us for who we are. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the for the hard story of Ananias and Sapphira, one that reaches deep down inside, roots around in our heart of hearts, and calls us to a radical obedience and faith in you. Lord, right now in these moments, help us to understand and find comfort in the fact that we don't have it all together. We all have our points of struggle. We all have things that we are, we are working out. And sometimes we need folks in our lives who can come alongside and, and challenge us. Sometimes we're in the place where we just need people to come alongside of us and love us. but love us too much to let us stay where we are. And so, God, we understand the story of Ananias and Sapphira as a story of deception. And so right now, in this moment, may we stop deceiving ourselves, and may we stop deceiving others, understanding that we can never deceive you. May we grow in our faith today. May you challenge us today to walk in greater obedience to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.